Back to Romans we go. And this is another reason why I wanted to be here today because I am committed to getting us through the end of the book of Romans by the summer, or by the end of the summer. And so I didn't want to, to uh, save this text for a later date. We need every Sunday that we can get. Um, and so we're going to tackle Romans. We're going to be back in the middle part of chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11 today. And so uh, let me give you a quick refresher um, on what we're going to be covering today. And, and I don't want to get your hopes up, but the fact that I'm preaching early and the fact that we don't have a children's message and all these other things, there's a chance, Lord willing, you're getting out early today, all right? Now, you've earned it after the truth series, and we went like long every single week. So hopefully we can get through this uh, in an efficient manner today. Uh, but we need to do a little bit of some backtrack with Romans because we're in an important section of the book of Romans where chapters 9 through 11 are essentially Paul trying to answer the question, what does this gospel mean for the nation of Israel? Right, like how does it impact them? How does it impact their story, their status of God's chosen people? That was a tension that was felt in the first three chapters of Romans. Then it kind of fades in the background as Paul goes into this elaborate dive and an explanation of righteousness that is by faith that takes you through chapter eight. And then in chapter nine, he comes back and he revisits the issue. Chapter nine in and of itself really kind of addresses the question of election. Right? What does it mean to be chosen by God, to be God's chosen people? And, and essentially what Paul tries to emphasize in chapter 9 is the idea that election was never based upon merit. Right? It wasn't about Israel's faithfulness to a covenant. It wasn't about Israel's uh, personal uh, heritage or their identity or their works or anything, that God had just chosen them. And, and Paul draws from examples of Abraham's descendants, the stories of Jacob and Esau, to make this point and to explain how God's elective purposes work, especially in light of the gospel. Well, as he begins to make that explanation, and you start to transition to chapter 10, and he reemphasizes the lens of the gospel and the gospel's impact on, on understanding God's election, he can't help but just emote again about the power of the gospel. And that's what took us through Easter Sunday and Commitment Sunday. You get to chapter 10, and he talks about if you believe, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a beautiful Easter text, one that we enjoy together. And then we got into Commitment Sunday to see Paul give that challenge to say, well, then how are they going to believe if they haven't heard? And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they going to preach unless someone has sent them? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so, so that's really where Paul has taken it. And that's where we left off. And so now we pick back up in chapter 10 to return to how Israel is responding to this gospel. Now, before we get to this text today, here's the challenge of what we're taking on. The challenge of this particular section of scripture is that it's, it's too broad. Like, like really what we should do is read the rest of chapter 10 and all of chapter 11 to get what Paul's answer is. That's too much for one Sunday. So we have to stop it kind of halfway into the story, and that's going to create a certain tension, right? A certain um, discomfort, if you will, which is part of the reason, again, why I didn't want to hand this off to someone else. And you'll see that as we read it, uh, but we have to do that. And, and so here's what I want you to keep in mind before we start reading it, is that part of that tension that we're going to feel today and that discomfort is because we're only looking at part of the story. Like we're only looking at part of Paul's answer. This would be the equivalent of you watching Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, and then never watching Return of the Jedi, right? Like you'd be going, 
what do you mean the bad guy wins? Why did he get his hand cut off? Like, and it would be kind of discouraging and you would have no idea about like the goodness of Ewoks and Luke's amazing story. Like it'd be, it'd be unsettling, you know? And so what you typically do is you gotta keep watching, right? You gotta keep going. When you read a book, you don't stop two thirds of the way in and go, well, gosh, this was a terrible book. You keep reading. You keep watching to see the fullness of the story. And that to me is something you need to keep in mind as we look at this today. And something that I would tell you is almost really kind of our application. Um, that a lot of times it's hard for us to know what God's doing. It's hard for us to fully see his plan. And in those moments of tension and in that moment of discomfort, one of the greatest responses we can have is to keep reading, to keep watching, and to see God's plan of faithfulness and his plan of grace. Okay, so here's how we're going to do it. We're going to work through this incrementally. Okay, we're going to start in chapter 10, right after uh, where he'd made that declaration of how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. Let's look at the first few verses here. It says, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Okay, let's stop there. So here's what's happened. Paul has just uh, elaborated on the gospel. Here's how you believe, right? Here's all these things. And so then he goes, so, so is Israel not believed? Well, of course, you know, why, why haven't they believed? Because even Isaiah says, who has believed our message? Israel has not responded to this gospel. And he explains it again, that, that faith comes by hearing. So maybe... The reason Israel hasn't believed is because they haven't heard. Essentially, what we're about to read is a series of questions that Paul is about to ask to try to better understand Israel's unbelief. And the first question is, well, maybe they don't believe because they haven't heard. And before we get into Israel's reality here and, and Paul's answer to that question, I want to stop and validate the reason for him wondering this, that for many people, the reason they don't believe in this gospel, the reason they don't believe in Christ is because they have not heard. And that is not an ancient consideration. That is one that we need to be mindful of in our modern context today. Uh, Joshua Project is, is a great organization that has done an extensive amount of research around the world to evaluate how far the gospel has spread and what work remains to be done. It, it, it really helps shape and forge a lot of missiological strategies. And some of the statistics that you can find on their website would say that there are more than three billion people that are still considered to be unreached, right? That have not yet professed uh, a strong adherence to this gospel. Of those three billion people, 128 million have zero scripture in their language at all. So there are a lot of people around the world who haven't heard. This is a present reality and a present task for the church, a task that the church must take with the utmost seriousness and the utmost urgency. There are people all over the world who have not had a chance to hear. Now, before you start imagining those folks as residing in just some distant foreign land, right? That, that those who haven't heard, those who have never heard this gospel must be confined to some remote location 
living under some form of oppression, be that an oppressive government or an oppressive situation like poverty or whatever it is, can I tell you, it's not just a distant reality, it's a close one as well. Uh, several years ago, I used to go out uh, once a week with a friend of mine to essentially meet strangers and share the gospel. And, and there are pros and cons to that strategy of which we can debate in another setting or circumstance. I can, we can go into that on an evangelism sermon at some point. Um, there's some good to it. There's some downside to it. But essentially, this is what we were doing. We'd go out once a week, and we both had a heart for different cultures and different peoples. And so we would try to find folks that were um, from, from different cultural backgrounds. And so at one point, uh, we found this young UTA student who was from India. And we had, struck up a conversation, had a good little small talk visit, and were able to, to kind of steer the conversation in a direction that led us to talk about spiritual matters, spiritual questions. And in the course of that, we had a chance to share the gospel. And after we shared the gospel, I'll never forget this, I asked him, I said, have you ever heard this story before? And he looked at me and he just shook his head no. And to make sure I, I, I was understanding his answer and to make sure he was understanding my question, I said, so like, have you ever heard of Jesus? And he shook his head and he said, no. That was right in the middle of Dallas-Fort Worth in like 2018. And he had never heard. So, so this question, have they heard, is a real question of which the church must take with the utmost seriousness and the utmost urgency. It is not just a distant reality, it is in our midst. And we have been sent to proclaim this message, right? And so, so we need to take it seriously. Now, was that Israel's problem? Well, Paul answers it, uh, no. Uh, they have absolutely heard. Of course they did, is what he says. And then he quotes the psalmist. And, and he quotes the psalmist not to say that this is a fulfillment of prophecy because he says the word has gone out to all the earth, to the ends of the world. That's not literal. He's not saying this has been fulfilled and the gospel has now reached everywhere that it can reach. He's using it more as, as kind of an expression to exaggerate the extent to which they have gone to make sure the Israelites have heard this gospel. And this makes a lot of sense coming from Paul because we're probably about 20 years removed from the cross in, in the resurrection at the time that he's writing this letter. You can go back and you can trace a lot of the details of Paul's missionary journeys and the things that have taken place and all the different regions he has gone to, the different surrounding areas and villages. And you can also see uh, his methodology. And every time he went to a new village, every time he went to a new place, where would he go? To the synagogue, right? His whole mantra was first for the Jew then for the Gentile. And so from Paul's personal experience, his own methodology, a methodology that was likely emulated by others, that he can say from his own personal testimony, you know, we've made tremendous effort to make sure that the Jews and the Israelites have heard this gospel. This is not unbelief on an account of not hearing. So he answers his first question. Let's consider the second one then. Picking back up in verse 19. So again I ask, did Israel not understand? For first Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Okay, so here's question number two. 
If it's not because they haven't heard, is their unbelief on account of them not understanding? This is, again, a very legitimate question that a lot of times we don't believe certain things because we don't understand them. Now, before, again, we get into uh, Israel's specific situation, let's just consider that for a moment and legitimize the question. Here's what happens, though, is a lot of times when we think about someone not believing something because they don't understand it, it's easy for us to cast all the blame on the person, right? And, and their inability to comprehend, their inability to read, their inability to understand. And we, we kind of have a tendency to put all the blame on them. But what we need to remember this morning in particular is that a lot of times misunderstandings are a two-way street, right? It, it's part of communication that goes both ways. And, and a lot of times that misunderstanding is not just because of the recipient of the message, but the one that was communicating the message. Uh, I was trying to think of an example for this, and I couldn't help but uh, call to my memory my first mission trip that I ever took. I was a sophomore in college, and we went to Lusaka, Zambia to do a sports, uh, sports trip. We, we would use sports as a vehicle uh, to share the gospel. We were working with uh, orphans, orphans there in Lusaka. We ended up having a chance to host a camp and minister to around 250 to 500 kids in the span of a couple of weeks. It was awesome. And what we would do is we would teach them sports in addition to teaching the gospel. So I had a chance to teach baseball. I played baseball my whole life, and so that was a natural fit for me. And so I remember our first day all these young kids gather around at, at my little station and area to teach baseball, and I look at them all and I say, okay, everybody grab a glove and a ball, get a partner and start throwing the ball and warming up. All right, basic instructions, right? It's, it's, that's baseball. I've, like I said, I played it my whole life. That's how you warm up to get ready to play. And so I give those instructions, and then I start to put the bases out, leaving them to get warmed up. And all of a sudden, I look back, and I was kind of floored to see how they had interpreted my instructions when more than half of these kids had taken a left-handed glove, forced it on their right hand awkwardly, put the ball in the glove, and then tried to throw the ball with the glove to their partner. And I was like, oh, uh, we need to back up a little bit, right? Like, my instructions were not clear. And what I began to realize was that that was all on me as a communicator because these kids, right, they didn't have any concept of baseball. They were not going home and watching the Rangers. Like they had never seen the sport played. So their inability to understand was not on them. That was on me. And, and I say that this morning because a lot of people in our context today who don't believe the gospel, who have heard it but don't believe it, the reason for their unbelief is because of the way the church has communicated it. Right? Like we, we don't need to just point fingers and say, well, well, I can't believe they don't understand it. How dare they not understand it? They clearly haven't taken the time. They haven't read. Like, we need some introspection as the church. And to recognize that some of that's on us, if not a lot of it. Because what's happened in our context today is that we've taken the essence of the gospel, Christ crucified and resurrected, and we've wrapped it up with celebrityism and politics and prosperity and division and abuse of power and moral failings and all these different things that have caused the world to look in on this message and say, no, I'm not interested. And it's because of how we've communicated it, how we've represented it. And it's created a tremendous amount of people not understanding. And so again, we need to take this with the utmost seriousness and the utmost urgency and reassess and reevaluate how am I 
communicating this gospel to the world around me and take that seriously. Right? So it's a legitimate question. Now, is that what was troubling Israel? No. Now, now Paul's answer is a little complex and confusing if you're like, if you're like me. Here's how he answers it. Was this a failure to understand? The way he answers it is by essentially pointing to different prophecies from Deuteronomy and Isaiah that speak to the fact that there are a people, there is a nation that is not yet a nation, who, who is going to find this belief, who is going to find this relationship with God, though they didn't understand it, though they didn't even seek it, right? And he's using this as a reference point to essentially say, hey, this is what's happening with the Gentiles. These prophecies are being fulfilled in your time. The Gentiles had no understanding of this God, no understanding of it, and yet now they're getting it, right? So that does happen, this inability to understand, but that was not so with Israel, right? What was Israel's response? He says here, God has held out his hand all day long. Israel has always had the opportunity to understand. As much as we might criticize how we personally can communicate a message or how the church can communicate the message, in Israel's situation, it was God communicating the message. And God had made it clear for them to understand who he was, what his heart was about, his plan, through the law and through the prophets and through his own display of power and miracles. Over and over again, God had held out his hand and they still refused to believe, not because of a lack of understanding, but because they were stubborn and they were obstinate, right? And that is the story of Israel. As you read through the Old Testament, they were faithful only to turn their backs. They were faithful only to turn their backs. And God was the one that was constantly giving his word as a way for them to understand. If there was ever a people on the planet that had the opportunity to understand what God was doing, it was Israel. Now, part of what I want you to see, that's, that's the direct answer that Paul offers. I want you to see the indirect implication of this. Because what Paul has done throughout the book of Romans, but especially in chapters 9 through 11, is quoted scripture after scripture after scripture. And so he is making this point that Israel has had the chance to understand this by quoting scripture upon scripture upon scripture in a very indirect way, it's almost as if Paul is telling his Jewish audience, keep reading. Return to the word that God has presented to you, that he has revealed to you. Keep reading it and you will see what he has to offer. You will see this, you will begin to understand. Don't run away from the scripture. Don't run away from his words. But to say that they didn't understand it cannot apply to the nation of Israel. All right, so that was the second question, which now triggers a third. Let's pick it up in ver chapter 11, verse 1. Here we're going to read verses 1 through 10, so a larger chunk. He says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself, for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. For if it were, grace would no longer be grace. So what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. For as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes they could not see, and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. All right, that's the end of the section I was going to preach today, which is why, as you can see, I didn't want to just hand it over. Right? It doesn't necessarily end with a super uplifting, uplifting way. And so what is Paul saying here? Okay, a couple of things that I want us to, to consider this morning. So here's the, here's the first question. Did they just not hear it? No, they've heard it. Well, did they just not understand it? No. Of all people, they had a chance to understand. So what's going on here? Has God just finally rejected them? Like, has God just finally gotten fed up after all these stories of, of, of Israel's history of them being stubborn, being obstinate, turning their back on Has he finally just rejected them? And before he can almost even finish asking the question, Paul says, by no means. Right? This is not a story of rejection. God has remained faithful. And, and to emphasize that faithfulness, Paul does a couple of things. The first is, is he refers to his own testimony. And he says, I myself am a Jew. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm an Israelite, right? Like I, it, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. He, he acknowledges his own identity and is saying, if I believe this, if I understand this, then I myself am evidence that God hasn't rejected his people. Right? So he, he points to his own testimony, but it's not just about Paul. He's saying there's something larger that's going on here that maybe we don't fully see and perceive. And he references this story from 1 Kings about Elijah. And there's this moment where Elijah feels completely alone, feels completely isolated, feels like he's, he's surrounded by people that have just flat out rejected God and started following the ways of Baal. And he cries out to God. He says, I'm the only one left. And God tells Elijah, no, you're not. I've reserved for myself 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal, right? Essentially what he says to Elijah is, there's a remnant among you that you don't see, but they've remained faithful. And so Paul is using that as an example to explain the current situation with Israel, that Paul's story is not unique. That, that though it may seem like most of Israel has turned their back and refused this message. There is actually a remnant. And that's what begins to kind of foreshadow what we're going to read more about next week in chapter 11. That, that's like the good part of the story, this, this promise of this remnant. And Paul alludes to it here, right, that there is a remnant that God has saved for himself. There are others that actually believe, and, and he tells us that that remnant is chosen by grace. And I love this little interlude here in this part of the story as part of his answer, right? Because essentially what, what he's doing now is he's, he's joining this emphasis on election that we've had in chapter 9 and, and have kinda, has kind of been a thread through chapter 10 as well. And he's reminding us that election works with grace. That, that those who have been identified in this remnant, those who have been reserved for God's uh, glory and, and the response of this gospel, that that has taken place not by merit, 
not by certain skills, not by certain deeds, but only by grace. For if it were by works, right, this was Israel's main problem, that they thought they could earn it, that they could achieve it by adhering to all these different elements of the law. And he's constantly combating that, saying that this is not by works. This is only by grace. This is how election has always worked. This is how the remnant works. God is a God of grace. And he's emphasizing that. And it's something that I want us to cling to this morning as well, right? That essentially what he's trying to explain at this point of chapter 11 is to say there's a story that's being written that you fully don't understand, right? You haven't seen the remnant yet. You, you, you don't even really acknowledge or realize that they're out there, but God has a plan, which was really the emphasis that we had when we started chapters 9 and 11, that part of the reason you and I can become courageous people is by knowing that God has a plan. And what I want to remind you of this morning is that plan is always a plan of grace. And I want you to be reminded of that this morning. Right? That it's not about what you can do. It's not about what you haven't done. It's not about the mistakes that you've made or haven't made. It, that is not how God works. God's plan of salvation, his plan of, of redemption is a plan of grace. And it's a plan for you. And I want you, wherever you are in your life, I want you to be encouraged by that. I want you to drink deeply of God's grace this morning. Whatever it is that you're facing, whatever it is that you're carrying, like, quit, quit trying to run from it. Quit trying to pretend. Quit trying so hard to fool up whatever it is and just drink deeply of God's grace. Right? That, that is what his plan has always been about. It's a plan of grace. So when you don't fully understand it, you don't fully see it, keep watching. Right? Wait and see how it unfolds. Wait until this metaphorical remnant comes to fruition and it all begins to make sense and you see the fullness of his story unfold and what you will see is that it has always been a story of grace. But keep reading, keep watching so that you can remind yourself of that grace. So he explains God hasn't rejected his people, right? So then what's going on? Why does Israel not believe? And here's where we get our answer and this is where it gets a little uncomfortable. He says essentially, he quotes Isaiah and Deuteronomy, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Right? Modern translation, he made them stupid. He's darkened their vision. He's blinded their eyes. Now that's a little bit more uncomfortable for us to read, isn't it? Because Paul's answer is uh, the, the reason they haven't believed is because God has more or less blinded them from it. And that can leave us a little uncomfortable. Now, I want to make sure we're clear on this, right? He, he talks about Israel's transgression. They were stubborn and obstinate. The Bible's very clear. God does not make people sin. He is not the author of evil, okay? So, so they're still responsible for their rebellion. They're still responsible for their disobedience, right? But we also know that God in this moment with Israel has darkened their vision, has hidden himself to a certain extent. And that's pretty unsettling if you really stop and think about it because you can't help but ask, why would he do that? 
And it's a little unsettling because I think we can all relate to Israel's story at certain times, can't we? That we go through these own moments in our lives where it feels like God is just distant, if not non-existent. Where is he? And it feels as if we're walking in darkness. And so when you read a passage like this and begin to discover, well, maybe, maybe God is hiding himself for a reason, that's a little bit harder to process. And that's the tension of today's message. Right? That, that's part of the discomfort of what this passage creates. And I want us to sit in it a little bit and recognize that, that that's not an uncommon experience in life. And so what do we do with it? Right? How do we make sense of it? Well, I'm going to give you a glimmer of next week that can just alleviate a little bit of that tension. Right? If, you, if you keep reading just for a moment, Verse 11 and 12, okay, here's, here's the preview for next week that gives us a little bit of, of clarity today. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Okay, this is remarkable, and it's a bit of a mystery, but I'm going to try to unpack it for us as we close up here, okay? Here's essentially what he's saying, is that this rejection is not so that they have stumbled to where they have fallen beyond recovery. You never fall beyond God's grace. No matter how dark it may seem, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And so what's happening is that Israel's transgression, right, their wandering, their disobedience is resulting in the rest of the world, specifically the Gentiles being brought into this plan of redemption and grace. And so Paul's saying, if their transgression means greater riches for the world, then how much greater will those riches be when we have full inclusion? Right? So he's saying the story is not over. This part of the story is creating an opportunity for the Gentiles and the rest of the world to understand who this God is. That's what their transgression is creating. And so while we don't fully understand it yet, while we haven't seen it fully written yet, God is using this time of darkness for the betterment of others. And so that often, I think, is a way that you and I can find a certain level of trust and confidence in God's grace. That when we ourselves or someone else that we know is going through that season of darkness, that God is still at work and his grace can still be found. Let, let me try to give you an example of how I think this works, and, and, and this will draw us to a close. Um, I have a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, who's older than I am. He has... Uh, children that are about my age, maybe a little bit younger. And um, one, of his, one of his children, uh, his daughter, uh, struggled with drug addiction through the course of college and young adulthood. And as I would talk to my friend about it, you know, no parent desires that for their child. Right? Nobody, nobody wants that for their child. And yet this was their reality, and they, they dealt with that fear and that apprehension of, of what it would mean for her life and all the struggles that she was going through. Well, when you focused in on her story, right, when she was in college, she found um, another guy, they got in a relationship, and he was a 
part of the reason that they got into drugs and, and it was just a very unhealthy dynamic. But he actually had two children from another relationship. And those two children uh, were with their birth mother who was n not good at all, right? It was a very abusive situation. And so you, you had all this darkness, so to speak, that was just going on. And though uh, my friend's daughter in this relationship that she was in was uh, struggling with drug addiction, they did have a genuine care and concern for these two boys um, and fought hard for those two boys. And through the course of so much prayer, so much intervention, uh, this, this girl and, and the relationship she was in, they actually not only overcame drug addiction, uh, but returned to a, a fullness of the gospel and, and a belief in Christ and were able to bring those two boys with them and into their family. And the trajectory of those two boys' lives changed drastically. And I'll never forget my friend reflecting upon this as he began to see it all unfold. Because no dad is ever going to send their daughter into a story of drug addiction. But God might. Especially if it means that transgression can result in the fuller inclusion of others, like two young boys that needed rescue. So when you're in the middle of it, you may not understand it. But what you can rest in if you keep reading and you keep watching is that God has a plan. And then even in those darkened moments where it seems like progression and unbelief is winning, God is using it for a fuller inclusion into the gospel. And so we can trust his plan. And that's my encouragement to you this morning. And as we begin to prepare to truly respond to this plan with worship and in truth, it's my hope that that will be the object of your praise and your devotion this morning. That wherever you are, you can hear the encouragement from the book of Romans. Keep reading his word. Keep watching for his plan to unfold. And trust and see that that plan is always pointed to his immeasurable grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we pray that your grace would be felt and experienced in very real and tangible ways today. God, that even in the midst of things that we don't fully understand, um, you are at work. And we thank you for that, God. We thank you for the ways that you can take even our rebellion, even um, our, our walking through darkness, and use it to the benefit of others. And God, we pray that you would uh, allow us to be a church that understands that through the ways in which we communicate this gospel, the ways in which we take this gospel around the world so that others can hear it, the ways in which we take it to our community so that others can understand it, and that even on those days where we might be confused, on those days where we don't fully grasp all that you have done, God, may we keep reading your word, may we keep waiting for you and watching for you, knowing that your grace will ultimately win above all else. God, we are so grateful for all that you do and all that you are. And we commit this time and this moment to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.